We speak often of critical race theory. And we discuss how parents have been fighting back, pushing back, saying this is not what we want for our children. This idea of of hate, of as parents call it, we're creating classes of people thinking themselves as the oppressed or the oppressor. Do we want our kids thinking of themselves as either one? Would we want this for any of our children? And it's not just white parents fighting back. It's parents of all colors, all religions, fighting back, saying this isn't right for our kids. And then we have the people telling us, like Terry McAuliffe out of Virginia, gubernatorial candidate. Oh, this it's not even real. There's no critical race theory. Donald Trump made it up. We have NBC putting out pieces saying, you know, this was only because Fox News brought it up and now it's, 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 it's a boogeyman like Antifa, as if somehow Antifa wasn't real or isn't real. But where are the teachers in all of this? Are they really interested in this? Well, the story I saw came from the Washington Free Beacon. A report saying that 40% of teachers say civics education should focus on critical race theory. One of the people who put that report together, Lindsay Burke. She joins us right now. Dr. Lindsay Burke, PhD, Director for the Center of Education Policy and the Mark A. Colocotronis Fellow in Education and also a part uh, as uh, she's a fellow at Ed Choice, which is an organization that I love and adore, talking about school choice right here in Indianapolis, Indiana. She joins us right now. Uh, the study when when it got uh, put out there by Washington Free Beacon that 40% of teachers say civics education should focus on critical race theory, the number isn't actually 40%. It was 40% of uh, the teachers uh, that were familiar with critical race theory and then the percentages after that. Break down for us what it is you found. Yeah, so th- thanks for having me. This survey was really interesting to us because not only did we have an opportunity to look at over a thousand teachers and over a thousand parents and better understand what they want in terms of civics education. But as you noted, we were able to take a deep dive and ask them some questions with regard to critical race theory. And the familiarity level was really interesting, as you point out, among all teachers in the survey, about 43% of teachers said they were familiar with critical race theory. And so to your point, when you break that down a little bit more, of the teachers who were familiar, who self-identified as being familiar with critical race theory, that number was actually a little bit higher. It was a little over 50% who had a positive view of it. And I think it's interesting to contrast that with parents where in our survey, which was a nationally representative survey, just about 35% of parents were familiar with critical race theory uh, and only about 26% had a positive view of it. So a bit of a disconnect there Uh, between parents and teachers on the issue. Well, let's go over that because what parents are often told, and we see this right here in in central Indiana, and I have groups that reach out to me all the time, groups that have started in the last two or three months uh, to fight these things, Unify Carmel, Unify Westfield groups in Brownsburg, Indiana, uh, and, and in other places, is that what they get told by superintendents is we're not teaching critical race theory. You don't know what critical race theory is. Oh, you don't quite understand. No, that's not 
happening. And they get this little pat on, on, on the head. And then as I, I, I teased when we started, there are those who say that critical race theory doesn't even exist. So when you take a look at the, 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 the gulf there, the chasm between the parents who are worried about this and, and, the, and the teacher side of it, where do you think that disconnect is? Is there a real difference in what the teachers think they're teaching versus what the parents think their kids are being taught? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. Critical race theory is a broad category. It's the, the academic category that has really now made its way out of the ivory tower and into the K-12 classroom. And so we see it manifests in different ways, even when districts allege that they're not teaching CRT. We do see it pop up in things like, say, equitable math or California has a new statewide ethnic studies curriculum. Um, when students are being taught, as you noted earlier, that only skin color matters, <laughs> that predetermines your future life outcomes or that America was built on white supremacy and is irredeemably racist. I mean, these, these are the types of ways it's manifesting itself in the classroom. And that's something else that our survey really teased out was that that's very different than what I would argue both parents and teachers, based on our data, want their children to be taught. I mean, families want and students should learn all of America's history, including shameful aspects like slavery and Jim Crow laws and segregation. But that should be coupled with content that creates a shared sense of national identity and teaching that America belongs to all Americans and that this nation and its progress are worth celebrating. And so I think that's the balance that families are really looking for. And, and I would say one other thing on the civics component specifically, I was really optimistic in our survey to see that 68% of parents and 83% of teachers said that civics education should focus on the study and rights and duties of citizenship, that that should be the primary focus. And so I think that's a, an area of agreement that uh, should give us some optimism moving forward. I uh, not only a, a believer in that. Uh, I'm a fellow of the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation, and my went through the, the studies this year. My final project was about how to further civics uh, in in not only schools but in people's lives. How do you utilize culture to reach people where they are to explain to them the rights and responsibilities they have. As citizens, talking to Dr. Lindsay Burke, director of the Center for Education Policy and the Mark A. Colocotrones, I think I'm saying it right, fellow in education over at heritage.org. Let's go back to this study. I want to break down some of the numbers as Washington Free Beacon describes them. Of the 43% of teachers familiar with critical race theory, 55% supported the doctrine uh, the idea that American institutions are inherently racist. 41% said civics education should focus on critical race theory. 57.5% of teachers said critical race theory should be included in civics education. I was struck by that. And you brought up the idea of civics and where parents are, where they, where they want to be about civics. Why would teachers decide that civics education is where this subject belongs? Well, I think the real connection here is with the colleges of education. Colleges of education are the training grounds for future teachers. The vast majority of teachers in public K-12 schools across the country went through a college of education in order to get state certified. And colleges of education really are steeped in critical theory, broadly critical race theory, and all of the various uh, iterations of it. And so teachers are largely going through these schools of ed. They are learning about it. 
embracing it in part and then taking it into the K-12 classroom. So when we see that figure where the proportion of teachers, 43%, who are familiar with it, when we see that familiarity uh, linked to a higher proportion of teachers who have a positive view of it, 55% of those who are familiar with it had a positive view of CRT, it's possible that teachers who are familiar with it are already predisposed to liking it. Um, So I think it would be a mistake to infer from that instead that knowing about CRT causes one to like it. I think it's possible that that we'll find a future study that as the rate of knowledge of the theory goes up, that the rate of support could go down. So it's, it's really early. These are super preliminary findings. But I do think that that college of education component is really the link between the two that deserves a lot more attention. For a lot of people, critical race theory is brand new. And very often you'll hear people who defend it say, well, it's been a legal theory for for 30 years. And then you can argue the conversation, the difference between the legal uh, theory uh, of it versus the critical race studies of a uh, Ibram Kendi, of a Robin DiAngelo and the insanity that that, as I describe it, uh, that comes forth from there. But when you discuss this taking place in in these colleges of education, uh, for example, it really does set the stage for the recognition for a lot of parents and for a lot of people who this isn't new. This isn't just the last year because of, of the death of George Floyd. Rather, this has been a longstanding idea and concept throughout academia that so many of us left to the wayside and paid no attention to, including those of us who were paying good money to universities to have our kids, in my words, indoctrinated. How far back does this go and exactly how deep is it in the university system? Well, you're right. Critical theory broadly, that umbrella, uh, came over to the United States in the 1930s. And then we see, as you know, it transitioned later uh, into critical uh, legal theory. And eventually, not until the 1990s, though, did we see what we currently know as critical race theory. So around the 1990s, we see it really starting to get its sea legs. I think what is interesting uh, is that if you look at colleges of education and faculty within those colleges of education across the country, uh, I did a study with Rick Hess at the American Enterprise Institute, and we looked at the top 20 colleges of education uh, by rank in terms of new SUs and world report and the top 20 by volume of teachers that they produce annually. And of those colleges of education, we looked at about 3,000 faculty members, about half study race as an issue, have a focus on it, which is is completely fine. There's nothing wrong there. But of those, about a third are doing so through a critical race theory lens. And so this really is a big part of what uh, faculty at colleges of education are studying today, which, of course, as we said, trickles down to the K-12 classroom. Talking to uh, Dr. Lindsay Burke, Ph.D. from Heritage Foundation, Heritage.org, this study that she was a part of, this report, a teacher saying that civics education should focus on critical race theory. And we're not going to get overly wonky, although I have no problem with it. When we talk about the 1930s, you're discussing the Frankfurt School, very different right. than, the, than the Austrian School. Uh, this this Marxist uh, incubator, uh, if you will, is where the these ideas and theories come from, and people have an understanding that it's connected to Marxism. Could you break down a little bit more of how exactly it is? Sure. So so you're right. Critical race theory, it is an academic discipline that was founded by law professors who used 
really Marxist analysis to conclude that racial dominance uh, by white individuals created systemic racism. Uh, that was really the core tenet there. Um, and, you know, as I noted, that really grew and transitioned throughout the 1990s into to critical race theory and has been dominant in colleges broadly for years. Uh, but as I noted, really, uh, colleges of education have, have given it uh, much more influence, I think, over the past few decades in particular, because the, the impact of critical theory was fairly limited in public policy until recently, but it has burst outside of the universities and really is affecting not only K-12 schools, but workplaces and state and federal governments and even the military at this point. And so I think that's why we're seeing this resistance broadly across the country by Americans who really refuse to have their children indoctrinated or submit to, to CRT. Before I let you go, I was looking at the, the study, which is at Heritage, heritage.org, uh, uh, civic studies, why they matter, what parents and teachers think, and how they can reclaim truth. And it talks about some key takeaways. One of the key takeaways was that students must learn the truth about America's heritage, which includes its imperfections as well as its remarkable strengths and successes. I, I, I agree, as I describe it, we should be teaching the good, the great, the bad, and the ugly. We should be in, in a full conversation of American history. But you also write, a new survey finds that parents are willing to improve the quality of their children's civics education and foster appreciation of the nation's founding principles, which is a, a, a highlight, an upbeat part of this, of this study. Talk to me about what it is that survey shows and what it finds. We're seeing parents out there fighting back. Sometimes they don't necessarily know how. What is it that you have found? Sure. Well, more than two-thirds of parents were interested in engaging more in civics education on their own with their children. And broadly, we found that about two-thirds of parents and nearly three-quarters of teachers, by the way, shared a really strong desire to see a greater emphasis on civics. Where there's a disconnect, though, is only about a third of each group were satisfied with the type of content and the type of civics education that children were currently receiving in schools. And so I think that's why we're seeing uh, this high number of families willing to do more of it on their own. And thankfully, there are great resources out there now. The Ashbrook Center, the Bill of Rights Institute, the James Madison Institute, and Heritage as well, uh, all either producing or linking to fantastic civics content that parents can use, uh, parents and teachers can use that's readily available. So I think coupling uh, that desire for more and better civics education with strong materials that are being produced right now and families engaging more with their school board members is really a, a winning recipe for reclaiming uh, civics education. Dr. Lindsay Burke, Lindsay M. Burke on, on the Twitter box. If you want to find her there, I appreciate you taking the time. The director of the Center for Education Policy and the Mark A. Colococronis Fellow in Education and also uh, working with and as a fellow at EdChoice, which is an organization on school choice I love and adore. Uh, Dr. Burke, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So I was talking about the baker in Colorado earlier. Jack Phillips Masterpiece Cake Shop. 
You have to make a cake, uh, decorate a cake for a same-sex marriage. He's like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. They, the Colorado goes after him. They sue him. Supreme Court, narrow victory. He says, you don't have to do that. And then someone says, oh, yeah? We'll do it for a, a gender reassignment uh, surgery. You have to make the cake. He's like, ah, I don't want to do that. I have religious issues with it. I'm not doing it. They sue him. Court says, you have to make the cake. What is this? As someone tweeted uh, me, so the bakery in Colorado... Since they have been ordered to bake the cake when they should charge five times what they would normally charge or more, uh, the question is like, can you can can you charge more for it, or do you have to charge the going rate? It's a specialty cake. Are you allowed to just make the choice? Here's a better one. Twitter can throw Donald Trump off Twitter, but the bakery can't decide what cake it decorates. Twitter can decide who's on their platform for any reason, and they're protected, but the cake shop isn't? Guys, that's the upside down right there. And it's important that we all recognize that the people who support attacking a baker and the people who support Twitter banning people from their platform these people are the totalitarians. When they say to you, they're inclusive, they're not. When they say to you they believe in diversity, they don't. One more story. National Review putting this out. Teachers see progress. Conservative parents see racism. The battle for public education arrives in red America. It's a syllabus for a high school in Kentucky where kids would learn about the intersectionality of gender, race, class, and sexuality and begin to create an action plan for future social change. Uh, what I what I say to you here is that for the people who told us critical race theory isn't in schools, uh, it seems to be in schools. Just following on my conversation with Dr. Burke. You're not wrong. The things that are happening are actually happening. And you're in a rare place that you're on the right side of all of it. What is the expression they use? The right side of history? You're also that way when we talk about H.R. 1 and S. 1, which is an overhaul of voting rights. Senator Todd Young of Indiana, he joins us next. He took to the floor of the Senate to have some words. We'll share those words coming up. This is Tony Katz today. These two Supreme Court cases are taking everything by storm right now. You know, you've got the case uh, involving Obamacare, 7-2 decision that keeps it intact, but the decision wasn't about Obamacare. It's so important to keep that in mind, that the decision... As, as, as procedural. That's, that's the best way to describe it. It was about whether or not standing w- w- was had, right? Can, can these states bring this case and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, uh, we don't like this Obamacare. That's what's interesting. The other one being about uh, Catholic uh, social services and being able to say, yes, we provide adoption, but we don't provide them to same-sex homes. It's a conversation of religious freedom. There's also a conversation about voting freedom. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Senator Todd Young joins us right now, Senator from Indiana. Because as we look at H.R. 1, S. 1 in the Senate, 
you see this conversation of this idea of a government takeover, really, of voting rights. And we see this pushed by the political left. And very often, we often see from them that the ends justify the means. Senator Young taken to the floor of the Senate and... uh, going at Democrats for pushing this idea. Senator Young, what is it that you said on the floor the other day? Well, look, uh, Tony, there is so much gas uh, lighting going on here with respect to this H.R. 1, S. 1, so-called For the People Act. And somebody had to clarify the record. So I went down to the floor of the United States Senate, and I actually... uh, decided to deliver some facts to my colleagues, to the American people, uh, uh, for all 20 who are watching C-SPAN 2. And um, I I wanted them to know that, look, our own Census Bureau indicates that uh, voter turnout for African Americans, for Hispanic Americans, were up this last elections, 3% and 6%, uh, respectively. Asian Americans saw a huge 10% increase. Voting has never been easier in this country. That's not the narrative that uh, the mainstream media is feeding us, though. But the, the whole intention of, of, of S1 is to try and allow Democrats to nationalize our elections and to rig the system so that they'll have permanent majorities um, in uh, in the U.S. Senate and in the U.S. House. And and so the value proposition, there are three quick things that I, 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 I uh, your listeners will be interested in. Number one, the Dems want to fund their campaigns with our tax dollars. So, you know, let's say somebody gives 100 bucks to Nancy Pelosi's campaign. That's part of their free speech rights. That's fine. They want to be civically engaged. They like Nancy Pelosi. But under this law, um, that $100 could be matched by $600 in taxpayer money. Um, that is not how I want my taxpayer money spent. Um They want to enable, to allow under the law, ballot harvesting in every state uh, across the country. So in in our state, you can already turn in your absentee ballot. But under this, anybody, anybody, complete stranger, could turn in uh, your absentee ballot, and there's zero limit on the number of ballots you can turn in. You can turn in. So here's the question, sir. And it's not that I disagree with you on any part of this. The question is, can't Republicans use this to their benefit as well? So when we talk about what the left can do, isn't this something that the right could do as well? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's very fair. And uh, to make that point, and frankly, uh, you're not going to hear this U.S. senator encouraging any Republicans to engage in that sort of nefarious, immoral, and un-American behavior. And that's where really th- this conversation is, right? It's that the law in and of itself is opposed to the American ethos. Yeah, it is. It, it really is uh, one person, one vote. Uh, we want to make sure that there is integrity to our election system so that everyone has has confidence in our system. We've done a great job of that in the state of Indiana. It's passed muster uh, throughout a, a series of legal challenges, most notably our voter ID law that was upheld by the Supreme Court a number of years ago. And, um, you know, it's been fair. It's been public spirited. It's been consistent with, with the, the vision of our founders of, of a republic of equal citizens, all equal in our citizenship. Some are, are more equal than others under the Democratic vision of S-1 or H.R. 1, though. And that would be, for example, those people who can go out and collect thousands of ballots and, and turn in those that they want to turn in.
Senator Todd Young, before I, I let you go, uh, you have been able to pull off a rare feat. When you do things I don't like, I say so. When you do things I like or I find impressive, uh, I say so. The Endless Frontier Act. You actually got a bipartisan bill uh, uh, through uh, the the Senate. I know you're going to be in Indiana tomorrow, uh, pushing it, talking about it, sharing about it. Give us an idea of what we're discussing here in regards to China and this act. This is the boldest, most sweeping, most comprehensive and toughest anti-China measure in the history of our nation. Uh, we passed it with bipartisan support, uh, out, as you indicated, out of the U.S. Senate. Um, the heart of it, the core of it, is investment in cutting-edge 21st century technologies, technologies that have military applications like artificial intelligence and robotics and uh, supercomputing. Uh, things the Chinese are investing heavily in, but they also have commercial applications. So to the extent the United States, as opposed to China, can dominate these fields, we're going to have 21st century jobs. Uh, there's a tech hub, hub component that, that will be very important to a number of our states as well. Uh, we uh, ensure that, you know, all the venture capitalists right now are on the coast. They're in places like Silicon Valley and Boston and, and the North Carolina Research Triangle. But there's so much untapped talent across the heartland. And so this bill calls for the establishment of tech hubs that will lead to better paying 21st century uh, jobs all across the country so that we can bring the American people into this battle against the Chinese Communist Party and they can enjoy more prosperous, more, fu more fulfilling lives as well. When do we bring drug manufacturing to the United States? Let's hope in fairly short order. I mean, we uh, roughly 70 percent of, of the inputs, and that's a, that's a, a real lowball estimate, uh, are imported from other countries. So we're clearly overly dependent on other countries uh, for our supply chains. So the way we're going to have to look at this is, is there are certain things that will have to be uh, located here in the United States of America. An example would be PPE, right? And then there are other things for which we can rely on trusted partners. Uh, Canada uh, would probably be, he'd be among those, right? Uh, uh, England, uh, uh, there, uh, Israel, there are others on the list. Uh, what we don't want to do is be uh, incredibly dependent, as we are right now, on communist China uh, to produce uh, essential, life-saving, life-extending things like pharmaceutical products. And oh, by the way, Indiana being both a, a pharmaceutical mecca and also the most manufacturing-intensive state in the country has real upside opportunity here and as we reshore uh, some of this manufacturing capability. Senator Todd Young, Senator from Indiana, young.senate.gov. I appreciate you taking uh, the time, sir. You can go back to work now. Good to you. Whatever it is you do. Always appreciate it, Tony. Out here. Absolutely. Take care, sir. Senator Todd Young. Today in the greater Cincinnati area. They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. If you know what that is, I'm very impressed. There's no way producer Ari knows what that is. He thinks we were actually having a technical difficulty. I about had an aneurysm. I was freaking out. <laughs> you don't know what that's the start of? 
Tony, I blacked out for the last 10 seconds. I don't I know. Oh, here, may, 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 maybe this part will help. Do you know this? Is that the theme song to Power Rangers? It is not the Power Rangers. What? Oh, it's not. Frank Bonner was the actor who played Herb Tarlick in WKRP in Cincinnati. Passed away at the age of 79. Now, if you had asked me, I would have assumed he was already dead. And I would have assumed he was much older than 79, which means he was a child when he played Herb Tarlick. And one of the absolutely great, great characters in television history. That show, those characters, that build-out, exceptional. Absolutely, positively exceptional. He was the sales guy. And it was the 70s, and it was the crazy, loud jackets and the insanely wide ties and everything else. Oh, holy cow. And I, I just saw that story come across. I was like, wow. I would have guessed money he was already passed. 79. Which means when he did the show, he was a child. A child. Had no clue. So Joe Biden's not a nice guy. I have got that story. And maybe I wasn't a nice guy about Hunter. I promised I'd share it with you. I didn't get to it yesterday. I'll get to it coming up. I'm Tony Katz. All I'm doing is getting texts and emails about WKRP in Cincinnati. (laughs) Yeah, people are tweeting me about it. I mean, I, I, I admit, I, I, I did not warn producer Ari I was gonna, I was gonna play like the, the long introduction to, to that show. I, I, I should apologize, uh, but I won't. Tony Katz, great to be with you. Tony Katz uh, today. Chris Hahn over there uh, at a uh, Fox. Uh, they, they're, they're progressive. Who once called me a hack on air? That's true. I, I was on with Dana Perino, and he called me a hack, and my exact line was, well, this is going well. That did happen. Um, Michael Flynn is a traitor. Ashley Babbitt was a terrorist. Putin is our adversary. Whoa. That's, uh, that's, that's a lot there. That's a lot. What, what, what do you expect? Look, Ashley Babbitt is the woman who was shot and killed in the Capitol during the riot. I don't think I call her a terrorist. I don't think I'm calling her a terrorist. And the people who have been talking about her have an argument to make. And their argument is she was unarmed. Since when are we okay with police shooting unarmed people? The response from Chuck Ross over Daily Caller was, it's really interesting seeing so many on the left support a police shooting of an unarmed person. Who responded to that? Actress Deborah Messing. Deborah Messing says she was breaking through a door behind which were our congresspersons. She was trying to assault our government leaders and was warned several times by police to stop trying to broach the chamber. But you know that. Okay. So that's what she was doing. She wouldn't listen to the police. She wouldn't listen 
to warnings to stop. Rich, Richard Grinnell, former acting DNI, former ambassador to Germany. Actress Deborah Messing wants police to shoot unarmed people if they feel threatened. Everybody's got to take, and not everybody's wrong. But if you're Deborah Messing and if you're Christopher Hahn, do you not realize the conversation that's being had by people like Richard Grinnell and Chuck Ross? We believe people should listen to the police. But you see in Minneapolis and in Indianapolis and in Seattle and in Portland and San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York, they're not listening to the police and they get protected. The biggest problem police have is that they have been told that if they don't do everything absolutely perfect, their whole career, their lives are over. And what we've told people who are possibly suspects or having interactions, if they're not even suspects, police are always wrong. You could do anything you want. Because anything the police do, we'll find them wrong and guilty and we'll go after them. So you've emboldened the, the not listening to police, the not listening to authority, the not giving a good holy you-know-what about any of it. And then you're amazed when people don't listen. I am not one of the people who thinks that Ashley Babbitt should be idolized. Because I'm one of the people who said I opposed the riot. And the entire scene should have been cleared. Which brings us to Nancy Pelosi. Why wasn't the scene cleared? Now, I have had words about this regarding President Trump. Your vice president's in the Capitol. You don't have the place cleared. I'm looking right at you. We're going to have this conversation. But let's take a step back for a moment. Where in the world was the security? You want to tell me that the sergeant-at-arms is to blame? That's fine. Why isn't he on trial? He was allowed to resign. The other one got fired. No, 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 no. Nancy Pelosi didn't have other protections there. Why not? And how about all of the videos that show people being welcomed into the Capitol? Like they weren't doing anything wrong. Are we going to deny the video in front of our face? I can clearly say that a riot at the Capitol was wrong and should have been stopped. And I can say in the same breath, and I want to know why it wasn't. I think that's the most rational conversation. But if you're going to call people rioters who got invited into the Capitol when they're told, okay, here you go. They have a reasonable belief that they're not rioters. They, they got invited in. If you invite in the vampire, you cannot be surprised if they go for your neck. All I'm saying is, is that you can't be surprised. And you can't expect something different, or you can't expect that these people thought A when it was B. Maybe my vampire analogy is a bad one. No, I liked it. You invite these people in. Now, there's no saying they're going to do something bad or what have you. That's my point, right? Going after the neck. I can't say that that was true of people who said who were told by Capitol Police, yeah, sure, here you go. Here's the rotunda. Have fun. There's an argument to be made there. What Deborah Messing and Christopher Hahn can't figure out is what they're arguing is what many of us have argued about the riots all over the country, but they didn't argue it. They didn't argue in favor of police in that way. When they do it now, it's just peculiar, man.
I hope they see it one day. This is Tony Katz today. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio.